Welcome to Soil to Soil, a podcast connecting the dots in the life cycle of clothing and material culture, brought to you by Fibershed. Each episode offers a look at how and why our community is working to cultivate fiber and dye systems that build soil and protect the health of our biosphere. In this episode, we'll be learning about how regenerative fiber systems are rooted in our relationship with place and how indigenous and traditional land stewards hold and practice a vision for whole ecosystem function at a landscape level. I'm Jess Daniels, and today I'm honored to welcome you into a conversation between Fibershed founder Rebecca Burgess and Ade Romero-Briones, who is the Director of Programs at the First Nations Development Institute. In today's episode, we will hear from Ade about Indigenous land stewardship. Ade explains some of the distinctions between terminology and frameworks like regenerative agriculture, traditional ecological knowledge, and concentric ecology. And she describes the drawbacks of focusing on, say, agricultural certifications or measuring carbon sequestration. As Ade describes, there is a deep need to understand both our own relationships with place and ecology and to honor the relationships between indigenous people and place that span so many generations. Ade and Rebecca talk about indigenous fiber and food systems and share how we have opportunities to change the way we grow, create, and value the goods that sustain us. Rebecca begins this interview with Ade's bio as a background and context for this conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy this enriching interview. Ade became the director of programs for the First Nations Institute in the last several years. She was formerly the director of community development for Pulama Lanai in Hawaii and is also the co-founder and former executive director of a nonprofit organization in Cochiti, Pueblo, New Mexico. Ade worked for the University of Arkansas School of Law Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative while earning her master's in food and agricultural law. Her thesis was on the Food Safety Modernization Act as it applied to the federal tribal relationship. And she has written extensively about food safety, produce safety rule and tribes, and the protection of tribal traditional foods. Uh, she is a U.S. Fulbright Scholar, and she received her Bachelor of Arts degree in Public Policy from Princeton University, and she received a Law Doctorate from Arizona State University's College of Law, in addition to her Master's degree in Food and Agriculture Law from the University of Arkansas. My goodness, you are so accomplished, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> Thank you for saying all that. I know it's a mouthful, but my grandpa says, like, you, you went and did all this schooling for so many years to, like, become a farmer. <laughs> I think that's the most important. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. And farmer. Not, not least at all of the efforts. Um, so, again, thank you for joining me in conversation today. And I first just wanted to congratulate you. I I was having a conversation earlier with Tashina Parker, and she mentioned that she had been in a screening of the film Gather, and she was very excited 
I think she got to know Fred and, and you through that. And I just wanted to congratulate you on this film to start. And for those listening, I was actually hoping we could hear a little bit from you on a summary of, of Gather and introduce this, you know, could be a way to introduce the incredibly important work that that film covers. And of course, we want people to go watch it. But I was hoping you could share a little bit about the film with us here. Absolutely. I um, Gather is probably one of the most stressful projects I've worked on because when it takes <laughs> so long and producing something for public consumption um, is really hard. <laughs> and it was the first movie that we've ever done at First Nations. And the movie's really focused on indigenous food system and their ev- food systems and their evolution. One of the reasons we created the film is oftentimes we talk to people in the food space or people in the agricultural space, and there's really no concept of how Indigenous people come to be in these spaces. So Gather focuses on the long history of food and agriculture and how it has impacted Indigenous communities and in turn how Indigenous communities are fighting to protect traditional foodways, which includes things like making sure we have clean water and um, making sure that ecosystems are intact and all in response to how people generally view food and agriculture, which sometimes can be destructive. Mm, Beautiful. I was reviewing a couple of the statistics, I think, um, that were featured on one of the graphics that the film uh, showed. And it it showed that from 1776 to 2010, like 1,510,677,343 acres of land in what we now call the United States was seized from indigenous communities. And I was just, again, quantifiable numbers always just kind of are a shock. Um, Even though we know that this land was stolen, it's just an incredible figure. And, you know, when you think about that number and then you think about building back these relationships to landscapes, it's, um, it's just, it's an amazing endeavor with, I just have so much respect for the idea of how you bring back native foodways in the face of that. And um, yeah, so thank you for that film. And everyone can watch it. Is that correct? If they go to- Every, Yes, everybody can watch it. You can firstnations.org. Um, and we also have a gatherfilm.com website and you can find it in either place or Amazon and iTunes. And thank you so much for that commentary. I think it's really hard to, um, like it's really hard for me to put numbers onto things. And it's because like it's, you're right, it's such a vast amount of acreage that was lost. And what that tells me is that there, even though all this land and, and acreage is no longer within like the legal ownership of indigenous people it tells me it speaks to the struggle that indigenous people have to remain connected to their ancestral landscapes 
because regardless of who owns the land, I think we still have responsibilities and obligations to those lands that are no longer in our control. So it just says to me that it's, it just becomes much harder to steward those landscapes when they're seized or in someone else's control because we still have to practice those real obligations to make sure those lands are healthy. And I, I so deeply appreciate the word obligation. I was recently thinking about how, um, how what a virtuous approach that is to, to still remain um, in connection in that way of saying that there's an obligation that we have to these lands, even though the violence associated with the theft is obviously a something that our United States um, system now has, you know, really never, I know that there's been apologies from the Catholic Church here and there. I heard one recently in California in the last 10 years, but, you know, it's um, the connection to the landscape. Um, I think my, my prayer and hope is that as the, the healing takes place and the recognition of the theft continues to land, that, um, that we will find ways so that indigenous communities can absolutely honor those obligations with all of us following your lead <laughs> that's my hope oh my gosh that's such a beautiful thought so that's so beautiful thank you for that i i love the way you phrase that oh <laughs> well it's may it be so <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing i've been learning from from you that oh, this is such a nice and like breath of huge fresh air actually um so Jess um, and I were both glued to your recent <laughs> presentation that you gave on decolonizing regenerative agriculture, which is a space that Fibershed, you know, in terms of agriculture, we spend a lot of time in that space. And um, I was just going to pivot into that presentation, if that's okay. Um, yes. Okay. So, so the... The things that you described in that presentation, the, you know, you walked us through phases of early agriculture to the current era, and you began with a story about your grandfather, and I was hoping um, that you might be able to recount the story uh, of you and he sitting down related to organic certification. That presentation was really short, so I really had to start somewhere. Um, but I think what I forgot to say in that webinar was that when I approached my grandpa with um, the possibility of becoming an organic certified operation, which he's a traditional Pueblo farmer and he's always farmed the same plot of land just like his grandpa and his grandpa before him with the same techniques they use generations for generations for generations. And so, Really, I, I think my naivety began with thinking, and this kind of goes, speaks to my, the introduction you gave me, my naivety was beginning with the idea that um, agriculture was something that you study maybe in, in an educational institution or you go to like an extension agent to learn about the different production practices or you learn about how systems are supposed to work when like my grandpa said he did all this schooling just to come back home because really all of those 
interactions and relationships that you learn come from being on the land and being with the plants and learning how the weather cycles affect how things grow and how in turn how that affects your emotional being and how that affects your mental state and then how it teaches you to relate to other people. So really like when I approached my grandpa with the idea of becoming organically certified and we pulled out the application and I said, okay, Bubba, it, they need your name. So I write his name. And the next line was like, where are you located? And his answer was, we're located in Cochipee on my grandpa's field. Because like, like we don't have an address for the field. It's like, we've been in this place for such a long time. And then the third question was like, what are the inputs that you put into your, um, onto your land? And my grandpa said, what does that mean? Well, we put prayers and love and river water. And I was like, no, but, but that's not what they're talking about. They want to know like what you put on the land. And he said, okay, um, seeds and prayers. <laughs> and so from that conversation, we had a very beautiful conversation about what inputs mean. And really, I think that was the first time I really, really paused and said, like indigenous approaches to how we grow food doesn't always fit well into the mainstream concept of agriculture. Um, even though it's both the process of like growing things from the earth, there's very different viewpoints and frameworks in which we operate. The differences between the approach and the frameworks between what you noted is the, you know, this progression that the colonial agriculture took over time. It went from, um, you know, the, the settler culture, you know, through technology hit inflection points and you had mentioned the green revolution. And then you had mentioned that, um, we now sit in an era where we're evaluating agriculture from a lens of this word regenerative. We're looking at it through the lens of organic and sometimes we're combining those terms and saying regenerative and organic. Um, and so I was also wondering if you could just describe how you've resonated or not with that term regenerative. Um, to be quite honest, I think I, the term regenerative agriculture, when I first heard it, my first reaction was like, oh my gosh, what is that? And this wasn't very long ago um, because I think we're at a time and place in our society where we have terminology and nomenclature popping up depending on what field you're in. And so I started hearing regenerative agriculture um, in some of the funder circles who fund spaces who wanted, you know, a different model. And so that was really the first time I started hearing regenerative agriculture. And to be quite honest, it kind of annoyed me. Because I was like, oh man, now I have to like, figure out what this term means. And when I dove into it, um, you know, there's a strong focus on soil health and a strong focus on um, like creating systems that regenerate. And my second thought was like, oh my gosh, this is just like another play on um, like indigenous practices because a lot of indigenous practice like that is, 
embodied in what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take care of the earth and make sure that it, again, regrows and is taken care of for the next generation. Mm. And so I was quite annoyed with the term. But then when I really started thinking about like the focus on soil, I really started thinking about how indigenous people, um, you know, our stories about the soil. And, you know, in California, it, the soil comes from generations and generations of salmon that have gone up the streams and they're giving up their lives and their bodies come down and refertilize this, the Central Valley, which is one of the most fertile places in all of America. And similarly, in my own community, there are animals and there are pro natural processes that ensure that our soil is fertile, like the migration of the elk and deer that come through our agricultural lands often. But that all requires like movement and that all requires like healthy ecosystems so that these animals can continue to migrate and continue on these natural paths, just like indigenous people that they have taken for generations upon generations. And then I realized like, really like as human beings and as an American society, we have put so much, so many barriers on these migration paths, but so many barriers on also how we think about how things are supposed to work and how, how our food systems are supposed to work and how like it's supposed, it's sort of so separate from everything else in the society. Like our animals have to be separate from our food and our farmers are, are separate from our artists and our artists are separate from our, you know, those who like go get PhDs in soil ecology, like there's such separate ways of living. Um, and, you know, I, I think those are largely man-made. I think there's a lot of hope there because you kind of follow the path. Like you can't talk about healthy soil without talking about the destruction of natural waterways. Or you can't talk about the destruction of natural waterways without talking about dams. And so really that does take me back to places where indigenous people practice indigenous stewardship. And so the vision of land regeneration in a, a truly um, holistic vision, and we'll get to some of the terminology that you have used in um, a recent paper, but um, this idea of holism in an ecosystem. So it sounds to me like if we're going to take the idea of carbon farming, which is a term, again, that I know we've used with agricultural projects that come from the colonial and Eurocentric model. We've been trying to see if we can help producers think about their soil and, you know, make improvements away from synthetic chemistry or towards a, a thoughtful way to work with animals, um, et cetera, an integration of plants and animals. I mean, in the systems we're dealing with now, as you, as you're so well aware, we've, we've even separated plants and animals kind of amazing. Um, anyone thought that was a good idea? And so in that carbon farming, though, if we use that, you know, that very Western term to try to help the, the more, I would say, 
degraded systems um, to make small improvements in them by focusing on some kind of organizing principle. What you're bringing forward is a a vision for whole ecosystem function at a a much broader landscape level. And that is deeply inspiring, important, and puts a whole new wider lens for us all who are in this work to gather around. And the idea of salmon being a cornerstone of the nutrient cycle, it's like, of course. (laughs) What were we? Right. And I think, you know, to be honest, like carbon, I think regenerative agriculture, like the way I've thought about it really, and it's not just like holistic land stewardship practices. Regenerative really implies that we have to think about how we exist in our landscapes differently. And again, I go back to the concept of like the barriers that man creates. So like in my own community, like in the 1960s, um, you know, the the university extension agent came and said, you know, you really need to keep out these elk and deer from your fields. And so here's all this fencing, 300 miles of fencing. And you, you put these fences around each one of your plots, your farm plots. And that fence is probably still there, still rolled up where they put it that many years ago. And the similar idea about carbon farming, right? Like I think it's beautiful that we have some producers who are willing to do carbon farming, but that doesn't say anything for like their neighbors who won't. Like it's hard for us to carbon farm if we're not doing it in concert and with one another, which again speaks to how we have to reframe how we exist in the world. This idea that we can, yes, we can improve our plots and yes, we can improve our um, the land we exist on, but our neighbors have to kind of commit to doing the same thing. Otherwise we're just like spinning our wheels in circles. And so if we're going to carbon farm, like we have to, we have to do it in mass and we have to do it together and we have to like create this, these relationships. And, and of course, you know, you're in agriculture, like that's really, really hard. I'm thinking about frameworks and what would help ignite and catalyze us to work together at watershed levels, at whole bioregional levels, at you know, oh gosh, I mean, at, at a watershed level, that would alone be a nice start. Um, and so we have to think differently, as you just said. And I was wondering if concentric ecology is a term. Do you think concentric ecology and the perspective that it brings when it's deeply embedded in your bones and your understanding of the world, do you think that that is a, I don't know if it's a framework or if it's a way of being or if it could be both? that could help us organize towards these. Yeah, yeah, so I'd love to hear more about concentric ecology. Yes, absolutely. I think um, what Enrique Salomon is the coiner of concentric ecology, and he's a brilliant man from the Tarumara Nation in Mexico, but it describes like indigenous frameworks 
quite well because it's just the idea that we're related to our our natural systems we're related to our water we're related to the food that we eat we're related to the animals who share our space and we're related to one another through the through land like one of the most amazing things to me about being in california is that there's so many microclimates and it's just such a beautiful landscape and one of the questions that historians had in california was like how did all these microclimates first evolve and then how do they interact with one another and like indigenous people say like we've been trading between like different areas for thousands of years and so the connection is really people and in the same way when we think about what we're doing now in agriculture and the food space like the connection is people and so the relationships that we have with one another are so important and the idea of concentric ecology is that we that we are related to those that surround us and that we influence those who surround us. And I think that's what makes regenerative agriculture so appealing to me is that we have an opportunity to acknowledge that in how we approach growing systems. Um, but on the other side of the coin, I think we're in a time and space where we're becoming less connected and we're becoming less social and we're becoming less trusting and so i th i think we're at a crux again of how we want to create these growing systems like we have to decide and i can decide for myself of course but really um we all have to decide in this space regardless of what my choice is like my choice can be canceled out by somebody else so it's really this idea that we have to work in concert and we have to build relationships with one another even if that's really really hard <laughs> when things are kind of going along with normal pace of life which has sped up and as you mentioned I, which i fully agree with there's a disconnect and technologies of course exacerbated and in many ways created <laughs> some of that disconnect and yet i think you know people do seem to rally around each other and common cause under duress um i have observed that with the the latest advents of now with fire and covid and climate crisis and so i think the challenge point when i reflect on your words is all of that disconnect is true and we do have to come up with an organizing principle that we can all share concentric ecology being i think a really strong to understand ourselves in relationship to all sentient and non-sentient beings things that are not just our species and our species is so important and we do seem to connect more when we're like like i said when we're under a little bit of stress so my question for humanity is like okay here's the climate crisis and we have to work together fairly quickly just you know we're gonna have to adapt and we're also gonna have to try to mitigate at the same time and my i guess my other hope is that that people will see the crisis well they're experiencing it in their bodies their homes their home communities that hopefully you know that, that these models which the film 
you know, your work gather through the film, through the paper, which I want to talk about, um, through the teachings that many people teaching traditional eco ecological knowledge are doing, you know, at least what I think is beneficial about this information age is that we hit crisis points, but we do have at our fingertips, I suppose, just a lot more data and knowledge. I think what's missing is the contextual, what pulls the knowledge together, what pulls the knowledge into action, what pulls us together, what pulls us together in action. And so that glue is obviously kind of what we're looking for, um, social glue. And yeah, I see it in moments. I guess it's just, yeah, it has not become consistent enough to see it manifest at the scale, which I think we know it needs to occur. So I'm with you. I, I can only hope and keep working and cracking away at this. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I, and I thought about this quite deeply. And I thought like, like my grandpa said, like I went to all this schooling just to come home to like learn from him again, um, which was great. And really what that experience taught me is that um, we began with the story, right? Like really I connect, reconnected with my own grandfather through story. And I connect with my community through story. Like we have a shared story. And whether we like it or not in this country, we have a shared story. Like if your folks came as like immigrants to this country, when it was like this country, this land has a story. And often, the narrative that we tell is not the, the true story. It's not, and it leaves out a whole lot of people. But if we could like come to some understanding about the story of this country and have people included in that story, like that's a, that's a start. Like it, it's a way to start connecting people. Um, but we have to tell the right story. We have to tell the true story of how we've all been connected to this land because it really starts to me with the story that's how indigenous people like have a shared experience is that we start with the same story and I, i'm not talking about like human creation stories i'm talking about like the story of this place that we call america and this place that we call home I and mean, there's stories and experiences that connect us all if we would just kind of acknowledge them and I think that's what we try to do with gather that's the work we're so hardwired for story and we are it's built in it's baked in we that the opportunity to um as you say have a, a bigger in, in a bigger embrace of a truer story is such a functionally healthy starting point for being able to do things like heal landscapes at the watershed level I guess what I keep think, thinking about that process is how to work with um, and support people through their fears. I think anytime that they think about working along these larger scales of landscape restoration, you know, we have to, we're going to have to look at some of the bigger organizing principles straight and straight ahead. Like, what is the economic model that we all embrace right now and what is the way we organize ourselves on landscapes like you know these are very big questions and they do 
they do arise in people who've been benefiting from them. They can be, they can be scary stories to unravel and then repackage and re-understand ourselves again. And I, yet, I do have the sense that I keep the, my my life mantra is everyone does better when everyone does better. And um, <laughs> I really I wish we could kind of get behind that idea that a wider embrace of truth is actually very liberating and we'll all be breathing more deeply, sleeping more soundly and enjoying life more fruitfully if we think and be in this place of embracing truth. So yeah, I, I know, yeah, I know even family members are like, Oh, this is a lot to do, Rebecca. And I'm like, I know it's okay. (laughs) You're going to be fine. The family members are the hardest. <laughs> Those are the hardest conversations to have. Absolutely. And I'm with you in, in everything you said, because I do think there needs to be a serious re-evaluation of the economic model. Like the idea that um, you can have a small majority, small minority control the larger majority, whether that be through land ownership or financial resources creates a lot of disruption, I think, for our well-being in a society together. Um, a lot of unwellness because it's yes. too vulnerable. I think at the end yes. of the day, it's not it's not a biomimetic economic design. You know, nature doesn't take all of her resources and just posit them in one little place on the planet you know earth is is a distributed system and uh yeah so we need to decentralize so many aspects of how this works how the resources are put up and again everyone will do better when everyone does better (laughs) well yeah and i think you hit on an important concept because oftentimes we hear the narrative that like man is in competition with nature or man is in competition with one another. And this idea that we're always competing for scarce resources, like I don't prescribe to that. Like I don't, you know, I think about the California quail and how it eats, it eats like a plant during one season, but then when it's time for it to reproduce, the plant to reproduce emits like a chemical that eventually um, affects the reproduction system of the quail so that the quail doesn't over reproduce. Like I think this idea that we're always competing um, is very damaging, but in nature we see systems that figure out how to create balance and how to create reciprocal relationships and how to exist in a space together and um to me that reflects the kind of society that i hope we eventually try to build or that we try to build now together because this idea that we're always competing for scarce resources just doesn't do anybody except the person who wins right much benefit I love that that real piece of information about the quail and the forage. And that is such a good um, foundation and analogy for what an economic model could look like in terms of 
you could still be fed and nourished and yet you're going to do you're going to be fed and nourished within a healthy container so that you know your species doesn't overrun its resource base it's like right. natural biochemical exchange that's helping the quail live within their ecolo the ecological carrying capacity for quail um right boy, i wish we had one of those maybe we do maybe it's we're not maybe i'm just ignorant and we have lots of climate change maybe that's what it is <laughs> seems like such a harsh <laughs> check and balance <laughs> that i would hope that we could create yes an economy that is yeah it has a, that kind of grace um that we design at the system that is fluid um and kind because <laughs> that is a fluid and kind example thank you for sharing it is it okay if we pivot to fiber systems for a moment yes of course <laughs> i just wanted to make sure we had time for this piece um that we we um we both have conversed about on several occasions and i was wondering if there would be a moment um in this interview to talk about the the indigenous cotton from from your community and my specific interest um, in pivoting to cotton was when you first told me about the cotton that was um, being farmed before colonization I think my jaw dropped and my eyes got big <laughs> it was just because I was so used to studying plant-based fiber systems that were mainly used for basketry or fish weirs other you know in the California systems that I was studying with teachers like Kathy Wallace um, I had learned about so many beautiful ways in which textile had been produced through California plant fibers, but I had no idea that there was an indigenous cotton here in what is now the United States, but before colonization. And just wanted to thank you first for bringing that to my attention because it changed my perspective pretty much on that entire plant. And would love to hear just a little bit about the relationship to that plant that had existed before colonization. And then you and I have talked about this, but if you could just highlight that inflection point in agricultural policy that changed what happened in terms of the cultivation of that crop going forward after, as you know, we've talked about that policy issue <laughs> before. Yes. Um, I, I can't remember what policy issue, but I'll just, I love cotton. And I think the story of cotton totally epitomizes indigenous experience when it comes to modern day agriculture systems because nobody knows about indigenous cotton or nobody on a, on a large scale knows about the indigenous cotton trade in america before colonization but i come from a community that was known so upon like arrival of the spanish they called us um the well-dressed people in Spanish because we were wearing cotton garments which we call mantas and these were grown in the valleys of the Rio Grande valleys and there are stories about how um, you know the trade all the way from South America 
to Northern California and Oregon and even Washington um, where we traded cotton. And there's the stories, of course, predate any contact with Spanish people, which were the first to kind of come into the area along that trade. But if you look at um, the formation of the Pueblo communities in New Mexico to Baja California to Southern California, they're on a specific trade route that goes from those areas all the way down to the Peruvian empires where they where they were known to grow green cotton. I think they have actually like 20 different kinds of cotton, but that trade existed long before any colonization. And really what sparked the change, what disrupted those trade practices is in the, the late 1800s and the early 1900s, um, there was the introduction of cotton to the South. And so really the Southern, and at that time, right, the Southern delegation was pretty powerful in American initiation of politics and economics. You know, there was tobacco, which is also an indigenous crop, but then it became cotton. And so that cotton, industry really became strong in the south and so there was agricultural legislation to actually focus the market in the south and all other parts or all other cotton markets where or communities where cotton were grown were eventually asked to like grow other things like alfalfa so there's records in my own community where people in the early 1900s were being paid almost a hundred dollars per acre which is like a ridiculous amount to grow alfalfa when those were originally cotton fields so that the market could then be switched or like targeted in the south and that the the economic benefit to the south would could really be honed and grown and cultivated um, and all other cotton markets became less important and eventually non-existent and eventually that whole story about the entire cotton empire from South America to Washington is just like not really part of agriculture history in America anymore. But like Enrique Salomon, he does talk about the cotton trade in his book called Eating the Landscape. Like I think that's one of the first places I've actually seen the story told. Um, and there's another author called, um, Greg Cajete, who does also talk about indigenous cotton, but the large majority of the cotton story remains with like the oral traditions of the people in the communities who still live along that cotton trade. You had shared with me uh, a couple of articles, I think, that had, or actually your childhood friend, Louis, <laughs> had shared them. Yes. Um, that he had written about recreating some of the textile and the well-dressed people uh, is, boy, true, a truly appropriate title for what I saw um, in the recreation of the, the woven structure of the textile. I think what we'll have to do is find a picture and add it into the description of, of this interview because, I mean, the weaving was so fine and 
what I was interested in too was like the amount of acreage. It had sounded to me the way you and Louis had described how the cotton was grown historically, that it was grown within a context of food for the community. So is is do you think of cotton? I mean, in terms of this a smaller scale production is what I was thinking compared to the Southeast where it was the plantation slave model, um, which is completely flies in the face of a subsistence economy. But could you describe a little bit about what I would call subsistence cotton and what that might have looked like if you were a weaver or you were a grower of it? How much of the process would you have been involved in um, through, I guess, from soil to skin? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's still, of course, like I wasn't around during the, the cotton production back then, but I have a pretty good idea about how that would have been grown just because the Pueblo people haven't changed their agricultural production practices much um, since colonization. I think we, we have like some people who practice the practices that maybe extension agents have brought in, but it's pretty much like still the same. And in that sense, every family has an acre of five to 10 acres. And every family had a weaver in their family whose sole purpose was to cultivate and weave the family's clothing. And so that five acre to 10 acre plot depending on the size of your family, of course, could feed the entire family, could feed, you know, people in the community who didn't, who weren't able to farm, and could grow the cotton in which your clothing was made. And so the production was that small. And I come from a really big family, and our plot is about seven acres. So that's the scale we're talking about. And also, like, when we look at some of the indigenous people of Peru, like, they're growing on the sides of mountains, like, and their cotton is, is very acclimated to some of their landscapes, which is very different than what we think of the southeast industry of cotton. And so it's like at a much smaller scale and the, but the real different value that I think when it comes to production is that clothing was respected, right? The, the, when you grow it from the seed and you process it and harvest it by hand and you do it for the family, like those textiles become so valuable and in of itself become like a being and you're respecting that. So it's not something that you would um, get rid of often. Today, you know, the cotton and clothing is so disposable. I I shudder to think about how much clothing goes to Goodwill. And that just wasn't the case. Like it was the production was in line with the value system in that like it's not expendable. You have value and time and earth and water that goes into this piece of clothing that you wear so you respect it and you take care of it and you keep it for as long as you can and then you return it to the earth when you're done. You are the um, original, well the traditional ecological knowledge for textiles is really completely embraced by everything you just said. I um, just feel like 
again, just hearing this history is like a, an incredible, uh, it's like a deeper breath that I can take because growing up in a culture with disposable textile um, and now that being on hyperdrive in terms of how we treat textile, I am so deeply refreshed by by understanding small-scale agriculture and the relationship to having a weaver within the family that can produce textile with a seven to 10 acre parcel that includes the food and the clothing and honoring that piece of clothing, as you said, as a being, um, as part of the concentric model. You're in relationship with your clothing versus something that is just objectified. Um, to the point where it's only looked at for its superficial beauty. There's just, again, the, I've, the term systemic beauty is a term I've used to describe some of the clothes that I've either made for myself or have made with friends. But this model, it's, it's like a widely spread understanding of how to create systemic beauty from soil to skin and back to soil. And you really, I mean, you've just described kind of like my dream community. If I could go back in time, I would go live there. <laughs> <laughs> we still have a few communities, like my own community is still very similar, even though there are some disruptions. I think one of the things you taught me, Rebecca, you and Louie, is that we still carry those same values, like for Pendleton blankets, for example, like when you get a blanket, like you cherish it, it's like you take care of it and you keep it and then I was thinking like maybe that textile is not worthy of our value system like we really got to think about like how we value Pendleton blankets we need more sustainable blankets <laughs> we need to value like our textile should be worthy of that value system and I think that's something I've learned from you and you and Louis for sure Oh, well, and, and right back at you in terms of the, the learning for um, just what I think it was he that described that if clothing was worn for a ceremony, that the clothing would also be taken, it would exist in a part of the home, kind of like getting, I don't know if the word is um, kind of like a pause, but before putting clothing back and maybe it's place where it would be stored for another time it there's kind of like um like giving clothing time to have its own experience <laughs> after ceremony um was described in a conversation and again just honoring there's a kind of life uh, and a sentience in your clothing and it's it's not just about airing it to give it some fresh air but there's actually like a process there's an energetic process to honor with our clothes and how they serve us and how we can serve them. Anim letting that animate, animating force, becoming aware again of that animating force that's present if we choose to just acknowledge it. <laughs> and so, yeah, the objectification of textile, may that be another era that we see the closure of soon. Absolutely. And I think you th we think about like where these textiles come from and when they're grown from the earth and like woven by your family and it doesn't even have to be from your family like somebody touched this plant or touched this animal to produce 
this piece of fabric that you now wear, like that in itself is an honorable practice. I don't know where we lost that because even even the cheapest t-shirt that we buy at a discount store has still been touched by somebody. And for some reason, we still don't value those people who created it. And, you know, to me, there's such a huge, there's something wrong there. <laughs> Fully agreed. I've <laughs> been working a little bit with um, the Garment Worker Center in Los Angeles and learning more about the 65,000 people in California who make up the, the largest part of the textile industry. And really, I think in the United States, in terms of employment, we have more cut and sew men and women in the greater Los Angeles area than anywhere else in the U.S. When speaking with one of the women who, who works in the cut and sew, um, that's her livelihood, uh, she was, yeah, she said, oh my goodness, I touch the textile over and over and over again. My hands have been through every place that the thread has stitched. My hands have guided those threads. And so it's so true that today we're still living with all this, all that human energy is still completely in the textile. It's just, we aren't, we aren't acknowledging it. So, yes. (laughs) Well, in, um, in thinking about just a bit of, summarizing this beautiful conversation i was wondering if you wanted to point us to a a couple of places where individuals could learn more yes so firstnations.org and we have a knowledge center and all of our resources are there first nations does has a you have a youtube channel and concentric ecology is well described and many beautiful stories can be found in Enrique Salomon's work. It's called Eating the Landscape. And he actually came out with another book. And his work is fascinating, if you have ever have a chance to read it. Thank you. Wonderful. All right. Well, we will add those resources as links. Um, and Ade, I just want to thank you for your time today. This has been both enlivening, but also just kind of like in a very good way, deeply stirring all the positive motivation I need (laughs) to keep going in agriculture and bigger vision. Thank you for listening to this episode of Soil to Soil, a podcast by Fibershed, which is a nonprofit organization based in Northern California on the traditional and ancestral territory of the Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo people. We invite you to learn more about our work and the concepts described here by visiting www.fibershed.org. There you can join our newsletter to hear the latest updates or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Fibershed. You can learn more about the projects you heard about and learn how the First Nations Development Institute is strengthening Native American communities and economies on www.firstnations.org. And the direct link for their incredible documentary is gather.film. That's the website. So you can find information about the show dates and how to screen it at G-A-T-H-E-R dot F-I-L-M. Please visit our show notes or fibershed.org slash podcast for direct links to these sites. And follow along on Twitter and Instagram at FNDI303. 
and on Facebook at First Nations Development Institute. Gather also has its own social media feeds with great clips if you want to check those out and share with your community. You can visit them on Instagram, they are at gatherfilm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash gatherfilmproject. It means so much to us that you're listening. If you would be so kind to leave us a review or rating or share on social media, we'd love to hear what's resonating with you, and it helps us reach more people with these episodes. This show is produced by Fibershed with support from Whetstone Media and music by Aaron Harris, who is a member of the Northern California Fibershed Producer Network.